1: I can't do that. It's alive! It's,
0: alive, it's alive. I guess everyone's a tad a little scare Well, hello, and welcome to. Why are you laughing already, Todd? It
1: made me. Think, it made me think of that uh, Seinfeld episode where he's talking about the chick's belly button. Hello. <laughs> I'm sorry sorry if you need to take it again take it again I'm sorry I, no, I, just, we're, I don't we're think I've seen now. that episode yet
0: I'm watching Seinfeld
1: right now and I don't
0: think wait I've seen you've that
2: one. you've never seen like every episode of Seinfeld
0: no man I, 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 I restarted episode it. of Seinfeld until like a few weeks ago you had never seen an episode of Seinfeld never in my life oh, oh man <laughs> Kramer is hilarious i only knew him from racist jokes <laughs> <laughs> just, and uhf and uhf that's yeah. <laughs> but um, he's great at seinfeld that
2: blows my mind that you had never seen an episode of seinfeld you're almost 40 years
1: old gary that's, that's you know? wild dude that's really wild <laughs> that,
0: i had never is, watched it and i know how popular it was it was just one of those things like i never got around to it and jennifer and i actually sat down and we we're finally like let's start watching it now we watch it Constantly, it's great. I watched it. I <laughs> like used to watch it. It's it
2: already. I used to watch it like literally every day because on on our local Fox affiliate they would show The Simpsons and then Seinfeld at seven and seven thirty every night, and I watched both of those every single day. I've seen every episode. I just re- actually restarted Seinfeld myself like a couple days ago just because I wanted to restart it. Uh, I have seen every episode of Seinfeld at least five times, I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> <So> <laughs>
0: weird, because there's another couple we're friends with where they're rewatching it also right now. Yeah. So I don't know. Mm, it's a great show. I don't know if people ever do this, but when you're driving in your car and you hear a song and you're like, I wonder if anybody else is hearing this exact same song right now. Like, I mean, I know it, I know radio right yeah, yeah we not all the are there <laughs> but if i'm listening to it like on on my phone on spotify or something i'm like is anybody else listening to this song right now and uh especially if it's like more obscure anyway i do that sometimes too with like seinfeld or friends or i know people are watching the office you know obviously it's very popular but it's just like you always i don't know i always wonder like how much do these shows still work with people that people are like regularly watching them and uh it's weird Seinfeld's the first one that I'm like watching for the first time but I know like four or five people that are apparently also watching this show right now too wow you you only got through well hello on your intro to this podcast (laughs) oh yeah uh, well I
1: I feel responsible for that let's pick back up from
0: there (laughs) well hello and welcome to cinema shock I've almost said the that time for some reason. Let's talk a little bit more about... No, I'm just kidding. We're going to get there. (laughs) Welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I am your co-host, Gary Horn. I'm co-host Justin Bishop. We
2: are joined, as always, by our third co-host, Mr. Writer-Comedian,
1: Todd A. Davis. Welcome back to the show, Todd. Hey, thanks for having me. It's third turd, whatever, you know, however that fits.
2: No, I said turd.
1: Yeah, oh, you did say turd? Okay, <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah.
2: Our turd co-host. <laughs> We're here for week three, the third and final week of our series that takes a look at the uh, the years that Toby Hooper spent with the infamous B-movie factory, Canon Films, the years in which Canon was trying desperately to break into blockbuster filmmaking, didn't quite work out for him, as we will discuss in this episode, uh, as we've kind of been discussing the last two episodes, but, you know, this is uh this is it's a sad story with canon because they made some fun movies but they also made some very bad business decisions <laughs> so
0: yeah they just kind of ended and up unfortunately
2: t- hiring toby hooper was one of those oh, wow but, yeah that's but, hey sad i'm not, to say it's i mean it's just this just the fact i i like all three of these movies i especially love the one that we're talking about today just to put all those cards on the table right off the bat but i've always loved this movie so i am i'm excited to talk about it but Financially, none of these movies did much to help Canon's fortunes.
0: They went on to make famous cult films instead of blockbuster movies.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they made a lot of money with some of their other movies uh, earlier on than this, but uh, then they they got a little too big for their britches, I think. Yeah, so last week we talked about Invaders from Mars. Uh, Invaders from Mars, as all of these films are, was a commercial failure. (laughs) But uh, that (laughs) one also happened to be, uh, it was critically okay it was mixed but okay reviews you know but didn't make any money but despite that toby hooper remained a pretty busy guy you know he was after all this is the guy who directed the texas chainsaw massacre and poltergeist so he still had those to his credit despite you know some of the past controversies and commercial shortcomings of some of his films he was still he still had some clout his name still had a little bit of a weight to it you know And his time with Canon Films, and I was looking at the time frame on this because I I looked at, you know, I started looking into this movie and I was like 1986, that's the same year as Invaders from Mars. It's uh, kind of wild that they were released the same year, but his time, the time that he was actually actively working for Canons was actually a pretty short period of time. It was like, it was a whirlwind of filmmaking over a, a really just a matter of months, honestly. So he oh. finished up Life Force, when he he finished up Life Force, the first movie he did for Canon, and then immediately began pre-production on Invaders from Mars before Life Force had even come out. And then he was still in the editing phase of Invaders from Mars when Canon tapped Hooper to direct their next film, which of course was a sequel to his breakout debut. And that sequel was released only two months after the release of invaders from mars wow isn't that crazy and we're talking of course about the the subject of today's episode the texas chainsaw massacre 2
1: 13 years ago audiences across america were horrified by the savagery of a faceless killer In the wake of this bizarre rampage, he vanished. Now, after more than a decade of silence, he has come out of hiding. Chainsaw Massacre 2. The Buzz is Back. Directed by Toby Hooper.
0: I just thought that would be good. Like, if you're coming back from the trailer <laughs> and you have like a chainsaw sound. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, that was your chainsaw sound.
0: Yeah. I could, you know.
2: Ring, we have. Ring, ring, ring.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <That's>,
2: <laughs> sounds more like a weed eater <laughs> does sound like a chainsaw <laughs> oh one of the main reasons that this film was put into production and released so quickly is because canon really wanted to capitalize on the current horror boom specifically the success of the slasher movie uh, exemplified by as we know the success of the friday the 13th and nightmare on elm street franchises So of course, who better to capitalize on the slasher film craze than one of the pioneers of the genre? And according to Hooper, though, he'd only intended to produce the sequel. He had intended on handing the directing reins over to another filmmaker, but he was having a really hard time finding a director for it, uh, at least one who he thought would be a good fit for the material that also fit into their budget. So he ended up just running out of time and and he couldn't he couldn't find anyone in time on the time frame they needed so he just ended up directing the movie himself. Now, if you've been listening to these episodes and hopefully you have uh this does contradict some of the information that we've given about canon signing Hooper onto a three-picture deal with the agreement that the third that the third film would be a sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre and that may have been their intention but I don't know that that was a contractual thing. I've found multiple interviews with Hooper where he gives this version of the story saying that, you know, I wasn't going to direct it at first. I I was going to let somebody else do it. Uh, He says that a lot in interviews, but as always, though, this is kind of just kind of a disclaimer. You know, when we talk about these movies, we're talking about, we're, we're getting a lot of this information from interviews with people who are involved. And a lot of times these are people discussing events that took place decades ago. So there's always going to be some conflicting information because human memory is weird, you know. So just a little bit of a disclaimer that if you on this or any other series that we do, if there is sometimes conflicting information, it's because that's just how the human brain is an imperfect piece of machinery.
0: Yeah. And maybe their priority really was just having Hooper's name. That's also very true. Yeah. You know, Maybe they just, that's what they cared about. So he still intended on not directing it. And, you know, it was just like, yes. Yeah. Because even if produce. he didn't direct it,
2: it, it could still say, like, Toby Hooper presents Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, directed by Joe D'Amato. That would be fucking cool if Joe D'Amato directed <laughs> Texas Chainsaw 2. It wouldn't be good, but it would be interesting. <laughs> directed by Brett Ratner.
0: <laughs> I don't know why that name came to mind for this. I don't know either, but because that's the <laughs> li-
2: that's like the worst person that could direct the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. Uh, although Michael Bay produced the the remake, right? That is true. true. So because of the rushed nature of the production on this movie, very little time was afforded to little details like pre-production and writing a script. So but in this respect, Hooper's familiarity with the material actually became a major asset. Uh, So having him in the director's chair was kind of a no-brainer because, hey, if we're going to have to do this fast and rush it into production, it does help to have the guy in the director's chair who created the franchise. So now that he was signed on as the film's director, Hooper went about looking for a writer to collaborate on the film with. And right around Christmas, 1985, Christmas of 1985, this is just a couple months after Life Force has come out, uh, he contacted his friend L.M. Kit Carson, who, as we'd mentioned, he had almost collaborated on years earlier with a movie called Dead and Alive. Uh, If you listened to our episode last uh, week on Invaders from Mars, then you also know that Carson's son was the kid cast as the lead in that film, Hunter Carson. And Carson, who from Texas, like Hooper, had first gained notice in the film world as an actor. He had appeared in Jim McBride's mockumentary, David Holzman's Diary, in 1967, where he played the title character, but he uh, became more known as a screenwriter. And over the years, he wrote or co-wrote several other screenplays. But his breakout came in 1984 when he co-wrote, along with uh, the great Sam Shepard, the screenplay for the 1984 Vim Vendor's film Paris, Texas, which also featured his son Hunter in his film debut. So having come just off the success of Paris, Texas, which when I say su- success, I mean, the film had won the Palme d'Or at the 1984 Cannes Film Festival. Uh, Carson was advised by pretty much everyone he knew not to sign on for a sleazy sequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They just basically all (laughs) told him like, this is career suicide. Like you just won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Like you could be known as a serious screenwriter. And everyone told him like, you're gonna get kicked out of the serious screenwriters club if you take Texas Chainsaw Massacre part two. But Carson, he, you know, he'd worked with Hooper before, years earlier, and he liked Toby Hooper. Like, he just liked working with the guy. I liked the way Toby Hooper's brain worked. Uh, here's what he would say in a later interview, or actually an essay that he wrote. Uh, this is a quote. I know Hooper has a trick for breaking in the back door to true strangeness, real madness. I know because he took me into that crazy place a few times during Dead and Alive. Scared the hell out of me. Yeah, Hooper's got a trick not many people know. He stands there grinning, drinking a Dr. Pepper and smoking a Havana and says, you never been in door number three? You've been in with the lady? You've been in with the tiger? Do you want to go in door number three? Spielberg tried to learn how to do that by producing Poltergeist. Didn't work. Um, I have no idea what the fuck he's talking about. Yeah, in that, I
0: was like, <laughs> what? But
2: <laughs> I think he's—I
0: think he's trying to say, like, you know, Hooper's got this way of making you look at things that you normally like. Where other people would tap out, Hooper's like, no, let's get crazier. Like you, Ex- you've, yeah, yeah, exactly. This thing like, Hooper, you've done, this thing, like, come on, you've come this far. Let's see how yeah. weird we can get. Exactly. Yeah.
2: I mean, that's basically what what he liked about Hooper's because Hooper wasn't afraid to like go in the weirdest places that his mind would take him. Like he would have the weirdest ideas and instead of just brushing them off, he wanted to explore them further, basically, which I is one thing I love about Toby Hooper, even in his, uh, his in both his successes and failures. Like you can never say that Toby Hooper's movies aren't unique and aren't singular works from a, from a, like a singular vision, you
1: know? Oh, um, exactly. Absolutely. Even, even, you know, and I can even say that even though he's not the top of my list, they are consistent.
2: They're consistent in their weirdness, but all feel like even unlike each other. Right? Other than, you know, some thematic stuff that yeah shows up in each one. Uh, that's what's so fun. You never know what the fuck you're going to get with a Toby Hooper movie. True. So Carson signs on and he wanted to basically get into the weird shit in Toby Hooper's brain. He wanted to be along for that ride. Uh, unfortunately though he didn't have a whole lot of time to actually write the movie since Cannon wanted the finished product about seven months later
0: which is fuck nuts yeah i was i was reading some stuff about that you know apparently kim hinkle had originally had an idea for a sequel and it would be like a whole town full of cannibals and it would be a satire of the movie uh motel hell from 1980 which was technically a satire of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right, yeah. (laughs) And it was going to be called like Beyond the Valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What a great Uh, title. (laughs) I was going to say, that's actually a pretty dope title. That's actually pretty great. (laughs) Yeah, um, but yeah, that that. that wasn't going to fly apparently. (laughs) So, Or whatever, I don't know. Um, In in interviews with Carson, I've seen him say that it was perfect timing for him because like you were just talking about, he'd written Paris, Texas and uh, he says his agent like a little while after, had called him up and said get you like you've you put yourself on the map here of serious screenwriters this is a big deal and Carson says he thinks in his head he's like I always wanted to do weird and fun stuff like that's the whole reason I write and uh so he's just like so I'm on the map uh let me see that map and he says yeah I take like one look and I'm like I gotta get off this map (laughs) He said, that's literally about that time is when Hooper hit him up for Texas Chainsaw two. And of course, the main thing they had in mind, according to Carson, and we'll probably talk more about this, but just to get it out there, what worked about the first one for him, he said, was that at least in your mind, it felt outrageous. And this time you could be outrageous in another way. And Hooper seemed really on board with that. Like according to the DP, Richard Chorus, uh, that was what sold half the crew too, is, is Carson sat down and wrote his first draft of the script in like three weeks. And uh, it was locked down. It was very like satire heavy script. They, he said it just kind of fell in place. Like they were looking at things like uh, the first movie, they were killing hippies. He said, uh, him and Hooper would talk about like, who, who do we kill now? like who's who's important to kill and uh so th- they were in a mall uh similar to how i guess texas chainsaw came about but it said they were in the yeah. mall and saw a bunch of yuppies and they were like oh yeah it's the yuppies we got to kill yuppies that's who yeah. people want dead. <laughs> Obviously. the obvious choice right and he said and then they even ran into like just immediately like fell into this idea of the family and uh you know like you dig into the Sawyer family show that dynamic uh and it's easy to connect them with the yuppies because they're like oh what if they take their meat and they do the chili cook-off he said all this just started coming like out of nowhere and then they were even going to do it on the other end too there's like he's like all these story elements start falling into place And there's lefty whose family's already crossed with the sawyer so it's like how can we connect him even more uh then you find out in in his original script that like stretches his illegitimate daughter the i think
2: they actually shot some stuff they did yeah uh, regarding
0: uh, that that got, that got ended up getting cut yeah this i'm sure we'll talk about that but that's uh yeah that that stuff was all shot you know they were going with the idea of in that aspect they wanted to fuck with john hughes movies like they were just like this is this is big right now <laughs> and uh and then well the
2: original it. poster for this is one of the great like oh, one yeah. sheets where it looks it's the a parody of the breakfast club exactly
0: <laughs> and uh he says that they, you know that they were they played up heavy the the romance of Leatherface and Stretch like or that mm-hmm. you know at least there was like a weirdness there and uh and he said th- the big thing was that they just didn't want to do the same thing again and said we want to shock you in a totally different way uh, so the whole script was paced and modeled after comedy now how that plays out uh Let's just say that according to Carson, he finished the script. Hooper and him were on the same page. They loved it. They were headed to Texas to secure locations and start pre-production. They already knew there'd be problems because Cannon might be expecting something else. But they said literally the night before they were going to go into pre-production on stuff, Cannon sent a guy. They had a meeting and they were told, we're taking a million dollars away from you. Oh, no. And- uh-huh. <laughs> and so... He was like, so then they just go into the next part of the, the story with like, oh, yeah, we just lost a million bucks immediately, you know? <laughs> wow. Jeez.
2: In the dozen or so years since the release of the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the, that film had become, uh, come to become uh, like considered a genuine classic of the horror genre. And it made a lot of money. But as we discussed back in our episode on that film, uh, it left a sour taste in the mouth of a lot of the participants. Uh, because folks that were integral to that film's success, people like Gunnar Hansen and Edwin Neal, felt that they were underrewarded rewarded for their work on the film and only agreed to return for the sequel if they were well compensated, which I think was a reasonable request, honestly, because they didn't make any money off that first movie, despite it making a lot of money for somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lo- we got a lot more information on that in our Texas Chainsaw Massacre episodes. I go listen to that to get into the, the nitty-gritty. But th- the mobs involved? so yeah it's exciting (laughs) it's a good it's
1: a good story
2: (laughs) uh and hooper he wanted the original actors back as well despite there being some bad blood and there had you know some past battles in the press but unfortunately it wasn't meant to be in the root cause as things often are was money because as we said you know the movie was being shot pretty fast uh it was planned on the fly and set to shoot in only five to six weeks on a budget of like 4.5 million dollars uh, you see it anywhere from saying 2.5 million to six million dollars. I think it was originally budgeted at maybe uh, three, three and a half or so. Cut like Gary said to 2.5, but then it did reportedly end up skyrocketing to closer to six million dollars before all was said and done. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the budget was going towards the salary of Dennis Hopper, who was an established star and you know could ask for more money than a lot of the other actors in the movie, and to the special makeup effects being created by Tom Savini. An Edwin Neal's agent reportedly asked for $45,000 for his participation, uh, a number that Canon Films turned down. And then Canon reportedly offered 10% below industry scale to Gunnar Hansen. Uh, So obviously he turned that down. And because they were unwilling to cough up the funds to do so, Canon wasn't able to secure their participation or the participation of other actors from the first movie like Marilyn Burns or John Dugan. So instead, the film was recast and made without any of them. And the only member of the original cast from the first film to appear was Jim Seedow, who'd played the cook in the original film. Here, he's given an actual name. His name is Drayton Sawyer. Sawyer, get Sawyer. You get it?
1: Yeah. Mm, yeah. (laughs) See what you did there.
2: I didn't do that. That was Toby Hoover. No, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) I didn't write. Wait, wait, wait.
1: You you didn't have anything to do with with... this movie. You didn't? Oh, all all right. I was four years old. Oh, okay.
0: It actually came from the earlier script where his name was Drayton Chainer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only laughing because that was such
2: a dumb joke. (laughs) Uh, So taking over uh, Gunnar Hansen's role as Leatherface was a hulking six foot three actor from Austin, Texas named Bill Johnson. And in the place of Edwin Neal's character, we're introduced to a character named Chop Top, who's another sibling of the family. Who they say was, he was in, away in Vietnam during the events of the first film. And Chop Top is played by genre great Bill Mosley. You guys know Bill Mosley; he's a horror legend mm-hmm. now. But his career was really just getting off the ground when he appeared in Hooper's film. A little bit of information on Mosley: like at the time before this movie he was working as a freelance writer he was doing articles for magazines like national lampoon there was a science fiction zine called omni that he did a lot of work for but in between assignments writing he made a little five minute short called the texas chainsaw manicure uh, which he had financed himself shot in a staten island beauty parlor and in that movie he had given himself a 15 second cameo Uh, but that 15 seconds was all that hooper needed to know that mostly was a guy that he really wanted to work with he actually played i think the the hitchhiker from the original movie, basically who is, who he's supposed to be. Edwin yeah. Neal's character and something
0: the, I saw said, he, he read or like he was called to be the brother of that guy too. Um, so well, I don't yeah. know if that's true, but yeah, no, he's supposed, well in,
2: in Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, he's supposed to be his brother. because Oh, does he say siblings. that. Oh yeah. Well, I guess that's siblings. true. Yeah. yeah. They're yeah, all members of the sense. Sawyer family. Yeah. So in 1984 or so, Mosley was broke and in debt and, not having yet made a career as an actor, uh, but he was still getting the occasional writing gig. And one of the assignments that he had took him to Los Angeles where he was covering the making of the movie 2010, The Year We Make Contact. And when he went to cover this, he brought a VHS copy of the Texas Chainsaw Manicure along with him. So while he's in LA, he meets up with an old high school friend of his who was now working in the movie business, a guy named Peter S. Seaman, who would go on to co-write Who Framed Roger Rabbit, also Shrek the Third.
1: Nice. Uh, less fun.
2: <laughs> uh, the two of them watched the Texas Chainsaw Manicure together, and Seaman loved it. And he asked Mosley, "He's like, hey, can you leave me a copy of that?" So he did. And then Seaman and his—I keep saying Seaman—and it's really messing with my brain. I,
1: I, I was thinking I, of that. I'm, i was I'm trying dying to be over the here, adult. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, his, just his, just his, lean his, into it, Justin. Just lean his into middle it. Middle
2: school years had to be rough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, Peter Seaman is his name. <laughs> Come on. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, anyway, where was oh. I? Seaman and his writing partner had an office at Paramount, which is where Toby Hooper's office was at the time. You know, he thought that Hooper would get a kick out of seeing this little parody film. So he showed it to him and Hooper watched it and liked it so much that he showed it to his producing partner, who was a guy at the time named Steven Spielberg. Uh, Spielberg liked it too. And he especially liked Mosley's cameo. So, uh, so Bill Mosley is actually given by his friend, Toby Hooper's number. And he called Toby Hooper and Toby Hooper told him, he's like, Hey, if I ever do a sequel, I'll keep you in mind. So cut to two years later and Hooper kept his word. A lot of, a lot of guys who, if they say, Hey, you know, if I ever do a sequel, yeah, I'll call you would be bullshitting, you know, but Hooper, he meant it. And he called, he called up Bill Mosley, offered him a, uh, a role. He offered him the role of chop top and Bill Mosley didn't even have to audition. He just gave him the role. That's awesome. <laughs> and Mosley was paid the SAG minimum, the Screen Actors Guild minimum, which he says was still about six times what he was making as a freelance writer. And then Mosley's agent was able to negotiate another five thousand dollars for him to shave his head, so that they could put on the uh, you know the prosthetic of the yeah. plate, and thus began a legendary
0: horror movie career. And, and and don't be fooled, by the way, because I would have never guessed this. But when you look up Bill Mosley and you learn a little bit more about him, I mean, you think this guy's got to be a fucking nut job. Like he has to be one in real life. Oh, he's uh, just a dad. But he's just a dad, and he's and he's just a he's, dad, <laughs> and and it looks like he comes from the swamp, but he comes from pretty good stock like he's out of yep. the midwest like his parents went to yale his grandparents went to yale he went to yale he graduated from yale um he uh like his mom was a journalist football player dad football player grandpa i don't know he i, I found a quote from him actually I when i was just like going down the rabbit hole with him he says as a college student i never thought my wildest dreams that acting could be my career I come from Midwest stocks, railroad people, and the idea of pursuing an acting career was akin to running off to join the circus. It wasn't until I landed the part of Chop Top 12 years after I graduated from Yale that it occurred to me you could actually make a living and a pretty good one at this acting thing. 2014 marked my 30th anniversary as a card-carrying Screen Actors Guild member. I've got health benefits for me and my family, a decent pension, and I'm still working. Go figure. He seems like such a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. He's, like he, he talks he's about very
2: appreciative of his fans. He he does conventions all the time and he'll often dress as chop top at
1: conventions sometimes. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> Literally
0: saw an interview where they were, he said he's, he's, he's had to quote the line, uh, lick my plate. You dog, dick, uh, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of times. He says, I yeah. never get tired of it. I'll do it anytime. <laughs> How could you get tired of that line or dog will
2: hunt dog will hunt. He, he actually, there was a, he wrote, I think it was a Facebook post, Uh, on his official Facebook, kind of reflecting on Texas Chainsaw. I think it was around the time of its anniversary a few years ago. And he ended his post with Dog Will Hunt. That's how he signed off. Like He embraces it. He loves it. He doesn't look down on it. He doesn't see that horror is like a lesser thing because he mostly does horror movies. I mean, he pretty much only does horror movies, it seems like. (laughs) Uh, We've talked about him once here on the show before because he had a small role in Savini's um, Night of the Living Dead as
1: Johnny. Uh, okay cool 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 i was like i know that name i know i've seen him before
2: (laughs) well he you know he's a lot of modern viewers probably know him best as otis driftwood from rob zombies um oh yeah devil's reject trilogy
1: okay he's otis yeah he
2: um
0: he said uh in some of that stuff you know like he the first movie he ever saw in a theater was uh the original blob and then uh he movies he ever saw in a theater were a double bill and it was the fly and return of the fly. And he said, it's, they scared the shit out of me. And he was just like, I've been a fan of horror movies ever since.
2: Yeah. He just <laughs> loves it. You know? And I don't know. I, I could talk about Bill's Mosley all day. Cause like his career is just, it's legendary. If you're like a horror fan, honestly, like he he's in, you know, we talked about the Rob zombie movies are probably the most mainstream, I guess you could say that he's in wouldn't you say commercial
0: yeah i mean or like that uh, i think he shows up does he show up in like the how i mean the rob zombie stuff i was gonna say he shows up in like the halloween remake i think at some point doesn't he
1: i
2: think he does and he's actually in um it's funny you mentioned the blob because he actually has a small role in the blob remake like an uh, i don't even know if he has i can't even remember if he has lines and he plays like a, a soldier in it uh you know so but yeah you know night of the living dead uh he's in Honey, I blew up the kid. So it's, I guess it's not all horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying uh, to so, think yeah.
0: of him right now. Just like even after like the Rob Zombie stuff, it's not like he was doing like mainstream like big movies. Uh, no. Yeah, I'm looking at he's his doing his like IMDb. A, like he, yeah, he's he, doing like Alone in the Dark two and you know shit, like, 2001 Maniacs and things like that, like <laughs> real real B movie shit. Yeah, he's he's in the Halloween remake and he's in. Uh, like he's in the Texas Chainsaw movie, that last one that they did. And like Yeah, the Texas Easter. Chainsaw 3D. He
2: plays the cook in it, I think.
0: Yeah, he plays Drayton Sawyer in that movie. Yeah, nice. And uh so
2: interesting. <laughs> anyway, we love Bill Mosley here. Bill Mosley gets the cinema shock seal of approval
0: his Weep. entire career
2: uh there's a if you want to talk uh, just one more note about bill mosley a really fun one that he's in is called repo the genetic opera have you guys seen repo
1: yeah i've seen that so uh, it's a I have pretty have short so, i'm aware of it but yeah it's only about I'm an hour about it.
2: long it's pretty short it's a musical but it's got um anthony stewart head from buffy in it and it's it's super fun it's by darren lynn boosman who's directed a lot of the saw movies okay yeah i the one that just came out but yeah I, I would recommend checking it out it's not like a it's not like a classic of, or any uh Thing like that but it's fun it's worth checking out it's worth an hour of your time anyway we we're talking about the cast of this movie cut off on a little uh, bill Mosley tangent there but he's he he's worth it so <laughs> but in other key roles in the film we've got uh Ken uh evert as grandpa under obviously a lot of prosthetic makeup really great prosthetic makeup honestly that that grandpa makeup is really good and because they get that camera gets right up on yeah. his face and yeah. like because you, you'd be able to see any flaws in it and it looks It looks really great. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Caroline Williams as the film's final girl, or really the film's only only girl, uh, Stretch, the the radio DJ. And I love Caroline Williams. Yeah, Uh, she's great. And so she's a native Texan. She'd made her film debut in 1975, but it only played little kind of small roles until she was cast in Texas Chainsaw 2. And she never really had the scream queen career of some of her peers Uh, But she's worked pretty steadily over the years and continues to appearing in everything from, like, she's in Days of Thunder to episodes of Murder, She Wrote and Grey's Anatomy. You know, she does a lot of TV these days. Uh, But in more recent years, filmmakers have started casting her in their horror films kind of as an ode to her her horror movie origins. Like, she's in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. I think she plays a doctor in it, if I remember right. She's in uh, Adam Green's Hatchet 3. And then in 2016, she appeared as a character named Stretch in Sharknado, The Fourth Awakens. <laughs> I <laughs> did. Presumably the fourth Sharknado movie.
0: Uh, oddly <laughs> enough, I did go on a binge of Sharknado movies once, and I do remember that. And she uses a chainsaw at some point. Like, she's a DJ, and she she does go get a chainsaw to fight the sharks with and stuff like that. But uh, she she tells the story of like how she got the role as being uh, she walked into that room and she had read the script or like her part, and it was it was mainly for that scene of when they first bust up in the radio station and she runs and goes into that room and like bolts the door and all of that stuff. And mm-hmm. she said there was this conga line of actresses just waiting outside the studio. And she said the weird part she noticed when she was walking up is that it was so quiet, like everybody was just keeping themselves going over their lines and like doing all of this stuff. She she just kept thinking that this this is way more than how quiet this is, mm. and uh, so she said uh, when she was called, she started at the end of the hallway and ran screaming down the hallway, ran into the room like threw Toby Hooper out of his chair, like grabbed the chair <laughs> and like pushed it up against the door to lock themselves in there, and <laughs> uh, then she got the job. I love it. I think she's and, great.
2: She's she's in that uh, In Search of Darkness documentary. Uh, the 80s horror documentary. She mm. did, she pops up in that a lot, actually. And she's really fun in her interviews. I love her in this. I really wish that she'd had more of like a, a big, like scream queen career. Cause I think she's fun. I think that she's actually a pretty good actress. I mean, in, in the early scenes, like she shows some real range. Like she's really charismatic, I think. Yeah. She also wears cutoff shorts very
0: well. <laughs> I was I was trying to not mention that, but since you did. How How I just don't want to always that? be the sexist one. <laughs> <laughs> that
2: was, yeah. was a compliment,
0: Gary. She's cute as hell. That's what we're trying. She is. Yeah, <laughs>
2: she is. She got that little Texas accent. I love it. She's great.
1: Cute as a button.
0: <laughs> is that a song? I don't even know that song. Is that a song? <laughs> what? Oh man, <laughs> that, that's that from uh,
1: no, that's from American Dad.
0: Okay, all right, well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> anyway, production on the film was not exactly smooth sailing, but that's what happens when you don't have the time for proper pre production or a finished script before the shooting begins. uh Writer Ellen Carson was often forced to rewrite on set. They said he was always behind a typewriter, like rewriting scenes. Uh, and, and an inept second unit resulted in one of the film's major gore set pieces being completely scrapped. And you can see this as a special feature it's on the blu-ray which as we've mentioned is incredibly expensive but you can find it on youtube The, the the deleted scenes are on youtube but the set piece that i'm talking about specifically involved the sawyer clan attacking a bunch of yuppies in a parking garage and one of those yuppies was played by a fellow texan named john bloom better known of course as joe bob briggs how about that i really want him to show this on his show like this, because I'd love to hear him talk about it. I would love to for him to show Texas Chainsaw 2 on the and last it's season. on shutter. And it's so on shutter, yeah. So they so can definitely they
0: could easily do it. Yeah. And they've already done part one. It sucks because you can clearly tell now, like, even just based on what I just said, I mean, this yuppie thing was a huge part of it for them. Like originally, oh, yeah. you know, there was a reason that he's at this cook-off and stuff. I'm sure that was all like connected. And if you think about it, like him driving away, it's probably after like all these people got murdered. That's why. Chop Top and Leatherface are cruising down the road in the truck, you know, and like it's all I'm sure all of that was connected. But anyway, I meant to mention earlier, by the way, just as a side note, another person who deserves some credit here is Lou Perryman, who's LG in the movie. And I love that guy. uh, He he, but he you know, he I, I don't know that we've talked about it much, but he was Toby's first assistant director in eggshells. So like he's on Toby since back then he was the assistant cameraman on Texas chainsaw. He's like briefly in poltergeist. So he's been like one of Hooper's buddies like the whole time. I didn't realize that, but he's,
2: he's great in this movie. I love him. He's one of those characters who like when they,
0: when he gets attacked
2: in that like raid on the, on the uh, radio station, like you're, you get kind of bummed
1: out I, you know? I was yeah i was kind of bummed <laughs> i was like oh oh gee i
2: love that guy he builds her a little uh, he builds her a little house made of french fries yeah, a little fry house a little fry house
0: <laughs> it sucks man he's yeah. great he's very lovable but but yeah everybody tells the story about carson having to like he was on set the whole entire time like they were constantly riding it. and they were like yeah. he never stopped riding he uh they, they said like at some point they would have to go up to Carson and uh, uh, the DP guy, he said he would have to go up to Carson. and be like, Hey man, um, we're, we've already shot that scene now. So you might as well just stop working on it. <laughs> it <was just> like, <laughs> that, one's, that one's done. Yeah. Uh, well, so Canon wasn't very happy with
2: how quickly Hooper was working. So they sent in a guy who, in an interview I saw with, uh, I, I watched this interview with Tom Savini on uh Rue Morgue. At, they're one of their like conventions in Canada and Tom Savini tells us, he tells this story about this guy coming to set and he described him as quote, the Nazi from Canon films. <laughs> it's this guy named Newt Arnold. <laughs> he describes him as having like a shaved bald head and an eye patch. And he'd come on set and he'd be like, yeah, like you do this, you do this like very commanding, like, you know, very matter of fact, very business like, and you do a bunch of setups and get, things filmed, uh, basically acting as the second unit on the film. And Savini says he was doing like 28 setups a day, which may be an exaggeration, but he's like, this guy's doing like 28 setups a day. Hooper's only getting like four or five done a day because Hooper, instead of like just barking orders is like, talking the scene over with people and, you know, things like that. Directing. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say, directing? (laughs) But none of Arnold's stuff ended up in the movie, including the aforementioned parking garage scene. That was one of his scenes that he shot. According to Tom Savini, nothing that guy shot is actually in the final product.
0: That's so weird. Yeah, another person uh, worth mentioning, too, is uh, uh, Carrie White, who's the production designer, too. Yeah, Um, Carrie White yeah what you know hooper talked about one of his proud things is like that for for better or worse or whatever like every he's like he constantly runs into people that worked on this movie that were like i work in hollywood now because of you thank you you know and yeah, that's it's, awesome uh, yeah i mean carrie white did like has done a lot of um robert Rodriguez movies like the faculty and spy kids yeah nice yeah yes.
2: i think it, it is working on like yellowstone now or like big 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 deals kind of stuff you know
0: yeah yeah so he's like a he's he's a hot he's hot shit in hollywood hot anyway but yeah, yeah he got to start he was like a local texas artist carson in texas yeah carson <laughs> and hooper found him just at, like some art thing or something they were like you got to come in and do this and, well uh, the work that he does on this movie is incredible yeah uh,
2: another person that is uh that does, doesn't get discussed enough in this movie is a guy named Bob Elmore. Now, Bob Elmore is uncredited in the film, unfairly uncredited. So Elmore was a stuntman, and he played Leatherface in the movie. And he actually played Leatherface in the movie more than Bill Johnson did. Like Bill Johnson is who is the on-screen credited Leatherface, and Bill Johnson is there for, like, close-ups where you can, you know, the eye movement, like, licking the lips, like, and stuff like that. But pretty much everything else in the movie involving any kind of physicality, which is most of Leatherface's scenes it's Bob Elmore, who's this big dude, uh, you know, like... And and he was forced to act. Like, there are scenes where he's like... I'm not an actor, but, like, Toby's basically directing him as if he's an actor. Like, the uh, the scene where he's attacking Stretch and, and you know, cutting the ice mm-hmm. in between her legs, you know, where she's got her legs spread and he's cutting the ice. Like, that's actually Bob Elmore, and that's a big acting scene for Leatherface. Mm-hmm. But they had a stunt guy doing it. So I feel like we need to give... Bob Elmore, a little bit of love because the movie didn't credit him because he was a he's a stunt guy and the stunt guys don't often get credited in films, un- unfortunately. But a lot of the, he worked with Savini a lot. I actually found out a lot about him in that same interview with Tom Savini. It was actually a panel with the two of them talking about this movie. Like the scene where Leatherface has the, the the chainsaw stuck through him and it's coming out of his back like that was Bob Elmore and that's a killer like um an effect because the chain is running Mm -hmm. and I don't I honestly don't know how they did it like (laughs) they talk about it in that interview but they don't explain the mechanics of it like how they made it look like the chain was running while going through a guy Uh, it's pretty awesome but we know Tom Savini (laughs) he likes he likes his magic tricks
0: oh yeah yeah man i mean there's a lot of love that went into making this movie not unlike the first one i mean it, it it just you know uh this one has more of a the rep is mixed but the production design and everything that i was just talking about like savini stuff uh just the cinematography everything that's going on here is pretty incredible i mean i was even thinking this time and i literally watched this just a few months ago like i said and and this time I was noticing like the colors in it, just how the lighting was in it. And just, I was like, I've got like Argento here at certain points. Yeah. 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 You, I mean, I think that's the case with a lot of Toby Hooper movies.
2: Actually you get that sort of a lot of primary colors. Like it started in eaten alive. So it
0: started very early in Hooper's
2: career.
1: I was just thinking about it. I guess
0: maybe, maybe it was that I had never connected it like that before.
2: Yeah. But once you see these, these three movies specifically, life force invaders from mars and then this you really notice like hooper's very surreal very unrealistic lighting because in invaders from mars especially when they're like when they're on the martian spaceship you get a lot of like blues and reds and very like creep show feeling mm-hmm. like primary color lighting mm-hmm. uh, that is i think is a really great touch and it's a really great stylistic uh, flourish i think
0: also, I love that he he seems to want to play with skeletons and stuff. That, that just skeletons. feels like classic horror. <laughs> and I was really noticing it this time around. I'm like, he just, he really does. He loves like just having skeletons around.
2: Yeah. And well, <laughs> the, the, the like skeleton that Chop Top is always playing with and turning into a puppet in this movie is supposed to be his brother. I think it's supposed to be the hitchhiker. Oh, wow. Uh, but it's at least oh. supposed to be, it's supposed to be one of the Sawyer clan who he's just like kept on, kept his corpse and turned it into a little puppet, you know, like at the very beginning of the movie wow. with Leatherface is playing with it, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's supposed to be one of their, because we know that they keep corpses. I mean, yeah. we we find great grandma and great grandpa or whatever in the top of the mountain at the end of the movie. Franklin's they, there. They, yeah. Yeah. They, so they kept Franklin
0: right. and his. Why do you ask, Franklin? Like, if you're going to keep anybody, Franklin. Franklin would be the last person on that list. I would think. But. <laughs> it's a trophy for him. Well, they—it's the probably they walk them. by buy him, and they're just like Sally. And they like slap it in the face. That's
2: <laughs> <laughs> just like that's how they get out their aggression every now and then. They just smack Franklin's corpse in the face. <laughs> well, here's what an editor of Starlog magazine st- said when he visited the set of the film. The pressure was on Toby Hooper. Canon Films was demanding that lost time be made up and that the movie be ready for release by late August, a schedule that seemed impossible to me. But Toby was not barking at people and showed no visible signs of the 12-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week marathon that he had lived since the 1st of May. Toby was a man totally in control of his production, aware of everything, answering questions, remembering things, helping, solving, creating. And I like that quote a lot because it's once again kind of fighting against the reputation that Toby Hooper got in the wake of Poltergeist where people said that some people were saying like, he seemed like he didn't know what he was doing on set. And this is a guy saying like Toby Hooper knew exactly what he was doing at all times and was totally in control. Uh, And I really, I really dig that. Yeah. Even though he was under intense pressure on this movie to get it done in time.
1: For sure. Yeah. And they,
0: they had this like weird thing about, I, I just saw like extra, just like cutting, getting it down to 90 to 100 minutes was like a huge priority for them. Uh, for, for canon. For canon because you can yeah. have more screenings in a day yeah. and make more money.
2: Yeah, of course. And the film did manage to be finished on time, but then of course it hit. Another roadblock, as Toby Hooper movies tend to do, uh, that roadblock was the MPAA, who we know is no friend of Toby Hooper's. Uh, of they refused to give the film an R rating. So and rather than go back uh, and, and be released with the dreaded X rating, which is just a death sentence for any movie, mm-hmm. uh, Canon, to their credit, released the film without any rating at all, much like George Romero's Dawn of the Dead had back in 1979. The problem with that though is that certain newspapers refuse to advertise an unrated film and some movie theaters refuse to show them which means fewer places showing the movie and fewer advertisements
1: yeah i would i mean nowadays i would think something like that would actually draw more people in did that well, is, was that was that the case here i mean it wasn't like it was being um
2: i don't know No, that's okay. (laughs) I think one thing to mention here, too, that would be worth censoring it, you know, Mm. so which I think is kind of what you're referring to. They weren't censoring it. They were actually doing the very opposite of censoring it. They were allowing it to be shown uncensored, but whether that enticed more people or not, probably, but if there's not a theater around showing it, then
0: that doesn't matter. Right, right. Um, One thing that I could not find anywhere else, and maybe you guys did or something, but the only place I found it was direct from the mouth of Carson, was that they had put together quickly a screening of this film. And they showed it. I, I swear to God, I think he says at con, but maybe not. Maybe it wasn't there. But they put together the screening to get it ready. And it was everything that they had worked on and built and they showed it at the screening and the audience loved it. Like they were laughing the whole time and, uh, it was very funny, but he said that he looked over it, Toby and he said he could just like see like Toby, just like realize that's not okay anymore or something. Like he, he said, he turned to him and said, we're going to have a problem. And he said immediately that night, the guys from Canon, called them into a meeting and they were like he his quote was like we want the monsters where are the monsters and mm-hmm. then they proceeded to go ahead and start hacking away at it themselves too i've got a quote from Hooper that actually kind of where he kind of talks
2: about what you're what you're saying you know what you said that they essentially took the film away and started cutting it for him Uh, and I, I didn't put this in our notes, so you're not going to get Gary's great Toby Hooper impression here. You're going to have to deal with me (laughs) just reading it, but this is what Toby Hooper said. He said, I haven't had final cut on a movie since the original chainsaw. It disturbs me that for the most part, my movies have not been shown the way that they were intended because of someone's fantastic wisdom. With Chainsaw 2, I felt the audience wanted and expected more than we had given them in 1974. Although I don't feel we went over the top, we still couldn't get a rating. Canon Films wasn't happy with the film because they wanted a straight-up horror movie, uh, something more akin to the original film. But what Hooper gave them was a black comedy, one that almost feels like a parody of the genre and, and specifically almost feels like a parody of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: Mm. Yeah, very and much crit-
2: it really does. I mean, it, it, and I'll get into that in a minute, but it, it subverts almost everything that the original one did, uh, purposely and critical reception was mixed as well. Roger Ebert gave the film one out of four stars saying, quote, it goes flat out from one end to the other, never spending any time on pacing on timing on the anticipation of horror. It doesn't even pause to establish the characters. Dennis Hopper has the most thankless task, playing a man who spends the first half of the movie looking dis- distracted and vague, the second half screaming during chainsaw duels. Uh, he would go on in, the, in his review to say that the film has, quote, a lot of blood and disembowelment, to be sure, but it doesn't have the terror of the original, the desire to be taken seriously. It's a geek show. And that, that well, quote, though, proves sure. that Eber kind of missed the whole point. Exactly. It's not taking yeah. itself seriously. Right purposely not taking itself seriously <laughs> uh but so which just i mean i love I, I we've said this before i love roger ebert i think he's one of the best film critics to ever live i think his dismissal of horror though is is just it drives me crazy
0: yeah <laughs> yeah for sure
1: It's you know, such a
2: bummer but it is you know but uh, a lot of other critics were complimentary of the film uh i mean it was like i said it was mixed you had reviews like the one from ebert then but you had others who were complimentary of it, much in the same way that some critics were complimentary of Invaders from Mars. They complimented it as a parody of the genre because they got it, something Roger Ebert clearly didn't. But horror fans at the time didn't quite know what to make of it, uh, although many of them have reassessed the film in the decades since its release. uh, And it's gone on to have a major cult following. This movie is very popular and remains probably one of the most popular films of Hooper's career. But uh, I, I bet there are some people, Gary, that haven't reassessed this to be some sort of modern classic, and have similar opinions to many of the horror fans that were were uh, were watching it back in 1986.
0: Oh my God, you! Uh, lots of people love Texas Chainsaw, the OG. Lots of people watch Texas Chainsaw Two, and lots of people sound like they need a nap. If there was a vote of negative 3,097, I would have picked that. That is from mPython (laughs) 1321 It says, first of all, don't even worry about reading spoilers. This movie has zero plot. Cracks (laughs) knuckles. That's in the review. Cracks knuckles. Cracks knuckles. (laughs) all right a a few of my good friends and myself rented this a few years ago because we were all fans of the original and also slightly fans of dennis hopper and i must say this movie did one thing to me that no other film had to this point accomplished it actually made me dumber literally somewhere between when dennis hopper puts his two miniature chainsaws in his holsters that are evidently made for miniature chainsaws and (laughs) with that stupid pointless Uh, He says, retarded guy, just so you know, his words, not mine. Who scratches his head with a clothes hanger. Why? Is throwing records around for no stupid reason. My friends and I just began staring blankly at each other. Come to think of it, I don't even remember if we finished it. I could go on for days about how terrible this movie was, as well as how irritated I am, knowing that at least 233 people in the world considered it to be a 10 out of 10 I warn friends and people on the street, never watch this. I want to tell the entire world, but I can't. Now, who am I and why should people care what I have to say? I don't know. I consider myself quite a well-broadened fan of movies. I have seen thousands and I'm going to school for film. This is, without a doubt, the worst. If you still insist on seeing it, then do so. But make sure you have no valuable objects lying around when you do because you may end up throwing them in a fit of rage. Terrible does not even begin to describe this.
1: Ooh. Wow.
0: Ouch. (laughs) Ouch. Boy went off. Yeah. Jeez. Pit Ray says, half star. Couldn't even finish this. Fuck you, Toby Hooper. (laughs) (laughs) That seems harsh. The man's dead. (laughs) cat petty says what in the redneck fuck (laughs) half star
1: that's specific
0: (laughs) ellie says i can't tell if this movie was serious or a joke either way it's shit (laughs) (laughs) these
2: all sound like letterbox reviews are these all letterbox reviews (laughs) they are those Those were letterbox users are
0: snarky i mean i'm one of them so (laughs) (laughs) i had to throw this one in for for you'll you'll know why just uh in just a moment the original movie is awesome and it still disturbs me no matter how many times i watch it i hope kim hinkle is sorry he wrote this it's like he just said let's take a great movie i made before and turn it into a rocky horror picture show trash festival yes the original film had humor but it was pitch black humor and you have to almost put yourself in a psychotic state of mind to laugh at it It was also very realistic. So realistic, you feel like you're there in the situation. This, however, is the exact opposite. Leatherface manages to take a chainsaw through the stomach and still be able to fight Dennis Hopper. That stupid guy, Tex, or whatever his name was, cuts his own throat and survives. Grandpa's still alive despite 12 years from the original film. I just took him as a very frail old man in the original, but in this, he's a zombie. The list goes on. I regret every second of my life I spent on this. I am very ashamed with Kim Hinkle. I will only forgive him if he takes this as a sequel without connection to the original. So obviously Kim? there is a problem with his review.
2: Well, Kim Hinkle had nothing to do with this
1: movie. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> what?
2: Who? <laughs> leave, leave Kim Hinkle alone. <laughs> uh, and I does he, think that, does he mean
0: Toby Hooper, you think? Maybe. Maybe he does. And he's
2: just saying Kim Hinkle the whole time?
0: what an idiot <laughs> <laughs> all right final one i swear to god oob on letterbox says one star not joining the cult on this one it's goofy as shit reportedly because nobody appreciated Toby hooper's comedic stylings in the original texas chainsaw massacre and he wanted everyone to know how damn fine of a satirist he could be nothing funnier than someone insisting how funny they are after all Granted, the set design is top-notch. The underground cathedral of grotesque is an amazing achievement, both in the sprawling caverns full of corpses and Christmas lights and the enormous dining room from hell with its sheer oppressive openness standing in the stark defiance to the inescapable doom it holds. Now I'm all out of positives. Otherwise, I fucking hated this movie. Hated Dennis Hopper's ludicrous wind in the key and I'll act nuts chainsaw night. Hated Leatherface being reduced to a sexually conflicted spin on Sloth from the goodies. Hated watching Bill Mosley eat his own crisped up scar tissue from a hot wire hanger. I hated the overbearing chainsaw as a dick imagery. I hated the upteeth bad horror movie take on look how hollow the American family dynamic really is, man. Through line. I hated Caroline Williams' incessant, mind-obliterating screaming that occupies the last hour. I hated the goddamn old man's jokey announcement getting sawed in the ass had removed his hemorrhoids. You know why nobody appreciated Hooper, Hooper's humor in the original? It's because it wasn't fucking funny. He's not funny. Chainsaw 2 is not funny. Yes, I'm in a shitty mood. Why are you asking? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, man. Well, okay, so now I have to wonder because we know Todd was not a still mind-bogglingly uh, not a fan of the original Texas chainsaw massacre stand uh, firm is,
1: stand firm on that
2: well whatever Todd uh, but this movie is wildly different from that one yeah uh, so I'm curious Todd what's your take
1: I uh I'll I'll watch Dennis Hopper do anything he he's, he's you watch great. him jerk off yeah yeah I'd watch him jerk <laughs> yeah. off Especially, especially if he's saying some of his one liners only or, with his burnt movies. up hand from speed. Yep. There you go. <laughs> <Wow>. um, <laughs> That's real shit. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, this has got a lot of same type of stuff and I can see this not being someone's favorite movie in looking at what Toby Hooper has done here. I, really i i i definitely enjoy this more than the original I, just because it's it's just fun and i feel like texas chainsaw the the first one just it wasn't it wasn't fun and it's not trying
2: to be fun the first one's I trying know. to
1: fucking torture you and it's yeah and it fun. was just
2: <laughs> not every movie know. is supposed to be fun but i agree that this one is a lot of fun
1: yeah this uh, is a lot but of... i
2: don't think i don't think the first one not being fun is a point against it i don't think that's that's not the point of the movie
1: well okay fair enough um i don't know i I feel like the characters are slightly are at least slightly more developed um and i feel like it's just a better made movie uh i kind of wish you know they had had a chance to a budget um to do this with the original i i feel i feel like i feel like the original just could have just could have been better uh, for all the we're love, it. here to no, bash me. the
2: original People Texas Chainsaw your time
1: People love it. I get it. People love it. It's it just didn't work for me. So well, we're
2: here to talk about Texas Chainsaw Two.
1: So Texas Chainsaw Two, I liked it better. I still is, it's okay. It's fun. It's funny. Whatever. It, it's Todd's,
2: Todd's a tough cookie to to,
1: to crack yeah, here. Th- yeah, this I, it's. I had I had fun watching it. I also had a good couple laughs at it. Ex- at its expense if that's Mm. if i can sum it up Mm. Mm.
0: that's rough uh
1: (laughs) well (laughs) i don't think it i I don't think what i said is as rough as some of the people that need a nap
0: (laughs) (laughs) no you're right todd you're entitled to your opinion don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not like judging you uh i just uh i mean i don't think this movie's perfect by any means i think uh i think the by the time they entered the tunnel it's a little longer than it needs to be for me. And uh, I know that a lot of people disagree with that. Like, I just feel like there's a lot of that chase. That's just, I don't know. It loses me sometimes in there, but otherwise I do like, I think I would have liked it more had the original concept of like stretch being the daughter been played out. And there were like some actual uh, connections there to like, give it some more heart. Maybe Um, I think, I think, that that would have helped it a lot for me to just be more invested in the characters. But I, I I mean, there was the one reviewer who mentioned how stupid it was for stretch to go do this thing. I always just take that as like horror person does stupid horror thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's just something the genre does. I mean, I, I, I mean, I already told you guys, I love this movie. I really love this movie. I think it's a ton of fun. Uh, And I love how wild it kind of gets, you know, we, we joked last week that I think I I read somebody calling this Toby Hooper's cocaine trilogy, and you can really feel that (laughs) influence here, (laughs) but it's still very much a Toby Hooper movie, you know, like it is one thing that we've discovered while we've explored the career of Toby Hooper, because we've talked about every movie of his from, you know, the mid seventies to the mid eighties at this point, a decade of his career, which is his main stretch of, uh, or at least theatrical releases. Um, but one thing we've discussed is that Ho- Hooper's films are often the products of their time. Like we, in our original Texas Chainsaw episode, we talked about how it was informed by everything from the Vietnam War to the gas crisis, uh, Richard Nixon, you know, like uh, distrusting of authority figures, while Poltergeist even tackled kind of the suburbification of America, it kind of skewered that. And Texas Chainsaw Two continues that trend. Like it takes it a step further. Actually, he he kind of skewers the yuppies, you know, that were emerging in the mid nineteen eighties. Because in this one, it's not just that they are targeting yuppies; they're becoming yuppies. The Sawyer clan they are finding success in in Reagan's America. You remember this is the nineteen eighties. This is like the Gordon Gecko "greed is good" era of America. And, and here you've got the cook Drayton Sawyer building himself a nice little business, you know, um, one that's being threatened by of course the ineptitude of his business partners, but also he bitches about property taxes, you know, and and one of the, 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 my uh, favorite jokes in the movie, uh, he bitches about property taxes, but that's like a big part of this movie is him trying to, he's really just trying to build a successful business and his brothers, you know, causing a ruckus or getting in the way of his plans, essentially, which is what kind of drives the whole plot. But even Chop Top, who is shown as being utterly insane, has business plans of his own because he talks about opening uh, Nom Land. You know, he's opening Nom Land, he jokes about in the movie, which is, you know, he's trying to get away from the family business and become financially independent. Like, it's this whole uh, American dream bullshit that everyone was buying into in the 1980s. And the chop top character, and who is obsessed with Vietnam, he's got like the kind of hippie outfit, and you know, that's also kind of uh, Toby Hooper and, and Kit Carson commenting on the times because there was a lot of nostalgia for the 60s in the 1980s, uh, much like there's a lot of nostalgia for the 80s now. You know, uh, there are no less than four Vietnam movies that were produced during the year surrounding. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. Like it was a big topic at the time.
0: Wow.
2: Um, the thing is, like this version of the the Sawyer family, unlike the first film, they're not out for revenge or or you know, in the first film, they're kind of like taking their aggression out on people because their jobs were taken away, right? Mm. That's a big, big thematic through line of that first movie. Oh, yeah. But this time they're just out to make money. Uh, they're just out to to make money and they're willing to take out anyone who gets in their way. You know, it's capitalism at its finest. like I'll take out anyone who gets in the way of me being successful, even they're they're making a killing by killing essentially. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and from the standpoint of like the tone of the film, obviously it couldn't be more different than the first film um, we've we've mentioned it a couple times that Hooper always talks about the first movie. It was supposed to be a dark comedy, and I don't know many people who actually view the first movie as a dark comedy, regardless of how many times Hooper insists that it is. But uh, there's no mistaking what he's going for in this film. I mean, he's very clearly trying to make a comedy with this film. Uh, Of course, Chop Top, Bill Mosley's character, is probably the biggest and most obvious source of humor in the film because he plays it so over the top. Uh, although it's also not hard to see the humor in like Dennis Hopper's character who spends the latter half of the film just running around with three chainsaws and screaming like, I'm bringing it all down over and over as he chops you know, down poles on the inside of this this uh, this cave. Yeah. but it's it's a wildly different feeling from the first movie as far as what Toby Hooper's trying to do. And it also differs a lot from the first film in its use of gore, which we haven't talked a lot about yet. But this, the first film, you know, we, we talked a lot about it when we did that episode. The first film is notably absent of any actual, like, bloodletting. There's not any real gore in that movie. But you can't say that here. I mean, the blood is flowing thanks to the incredible
0: special effects of Tom Savini. Yeah the um, the the one review that I read that the guy was talking about sequels amping up the violence and all of that stuff and I was just like well, you know you're you're acting like this movie didn't do that this movie absolutely amped up the violence because there was barely any technically I mean yeah you know I mean there was violence but
2: there wasn't gore yeah there wasn't like
0: yeah yeah
2: and and some folks including Hooper when he talks about this in retrospect thinks that the gore. Lessens the impact of the film, or diminishes the film's comedy, but I love it. I mean, it works for me because uh, the the gore is realistic. I mean, again, we've got Tom Savini. You know, he he's very good at his job, but it's also pretty over the top and cartoonish, which I I think really fits the film. Uh, I mean, look at LG, like when he, after he gets his face carved off, he's walking around, he still spits out his like dip. There's yeah. tobacco even after he's got <laughs> his face carved off. I mean, if that's not a cartoon, I don't know what is. Yeah, right. But with by by doing these things, by making these decisions, Hooper kind of completely subverts what the audience expects from a horror movie sequel, which is part of what I love about what he's doing with this movie. And then another example of that is, so in our discussion of the original film we kind of are, I remember mentioning how Leatherface or other members of the the family they don't really have any interest in their victims in any sort of sexual way. Uh, to them like Sally Hardesty and her friends are just meat. They're just a source for meat. There's mm-hmm. nothing sexual about it. Um but this one definitely goes in a different direction cuz Leatherface is horny in this yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah. He is a horny uh, he's, it's like he was a child in the first movie and now he's like a teenager and he's like hitting puberty and getting horny and because <laughs> they they clearly make the chainsaw like a phallic symbol right on this yeah. one yeah yeah. and he like has a crush on stretch and and in, in those shorts who can blame him and we see him we see him plunge the saw like there's that scene where he plunges the saw into the ice you know it's like right between her legs he's got the saw right between his her legs like that's a Somewhat heavy-handed, you know. Very clear, the chainsaw is a penis kind of scene, you know. Right. Uh, and then, and then the, the the chainsaw gets like stuck in the ice, and he's trying to get it out, and it definitely looks like he's like, like pumping and grinding, like he's fucking, basically <laughs> in that scene. And then there's a scene not long after that. Well, where- not like
0: you've never fucked an ice tray.
1: <laughs> Don't knock until you try it, fellas. <laughs> and then there's a scene right after that where he clearly is like jizzing in his pants <laughs> did, you, did you guys
2: notice that i don't yeah, think there's a scene where he like actual. he like convulses in a way where like oh leatherface just creamed his pants <laughs> uh which it's not the first time that's happened in a toby hooper movie because it happened in the fun house yeah
0: that's true remember mm. the
2: monster there yeah uh, yeah <laughs> uh but I mean, he's a teenager. It's gonna, it happen. I gotta say, yeah. you're
0: being really immature this episode, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> there's just a lot of scene talking. You're, talk in this you're the problem this episode, and it's just <laughs> fun is, for me to listen, be able to say that. There's
2: nothing problematic about. There's nothing. I'm just being. There's open. nothing we problematic have, about coming. There's nothing. <laughs> it's totally natural. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these types of decisions, I think, on Hooper's part, uh, is to me part of what makes this film so great because sequels and especially horror movie sequels are often like really predictable. You know, you know exactly what you're going to get from a, a Jason sequel or a Freddie sequel. Like, you know, exactly what you're in for. Uh, and that's part of what people, why people revisit them because it's like a comfort thing, but by taking it in a completely unexpected, unconventional direction Hooper's kind of keeping the audience on their toes. He's, he's giving them something that they haven't seen before and had no idea they were going to get. And I mean, the movie even subverts its, the expectations that it creates for itself. Like Dennis Hopper's character, the way they introduce him is like, he's going to be the, the hero who saves the day at the end, mm-hmm. but he just turns out to be another crazy person.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: and he's running around with chainsaws being just insane. And if you, think about it he does little to nothing to actually help at the end of the movie Uh, he's just he's just creating a bunch of property damage (laughs) you know i mean he gets in a cool chainsaw fight but it doesn't really amount to anything
1: yeah i do except our our enjoyment
0: yeah i mean i do love (laughs) dennis hopper in this movie he's a blast he's got some great lines and just i don't know he's dennis hopper really well, he's method, I think, anyway. so he,
2: Yeah, he actually, uh, according to uh, the stuntman who played Leatherface, he would, before scenes where he had, like, dialogue scenes with, with Stretch, he would spin around in circles on set to get himself dizzy and then, like, stop as soon as they yelled action so that he's, like, sitting there kind of, like, woozy and weird and like just gives it gives him a, a weird look to his eyes when he's talking to her in dialogue scenes like what a fucking weirdo yeah. like just do drugs i mean he, 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 i mean he, he was doing plenty of drugs anyway smoke uh, crack like a normal person did <laughs> <laughs> and then the the final i think the final like entire half i'd say half of this movie takes place in the sawyer like their underground lair at that old abandoned theme park which Mm -hmm. is a great another example of just great production design from a toby hooper movie uh it was filmed at this place called like matterhorn in texas i think in prairie hills texas uh this like closed down theme park like the mountain that you see is is that and they filmed some stuff in caves around there uh caves like the tunnels and stuff which again, Gary mentioned Carrie White earlier, but I can't stress enough how good Carrie White's work is here. Like that underground lair of the Sawyers is, I think, it just an incredible set. Yeah. An incredible no, set. It's, it's and really it's another, exciting. it's playing again into Hooper. You know, we talked about this last week, but Hooper's kind of fascination with these like underground, like the world underneath, the these inescapable realms that, you know, that, that, keep popping up through all of his movies mm. like the, you know, the carnival and the fun house has the, all the like tunnels underneath it or the, the Martian spaceship from invaders from Mars that we talked about last week, which was all underground, you know, uh, all, and a lot of this underground stuff, I think we brought this up in Texas chainsaw massacre. If, if I remember correctly, but it kind of recalls Alice in Wonderland. Uh, Cause what we talked about, I think in that episode was the the tea party. You know, that final dinner scene kind of being Marilyn Burns is Alice and this is her fucked up Wonderland. Uh, And that happens to be the only scene from the first movie that they actually kind of recreate in this one. But her going, you know, in these tunnels is very much like Alice falling into the tunnel and going into Wonderland, which is a metaphor that Rob Zombie 100% ran with with house of a thousand corpses he even had her in an alice uh dress i think right wasn't her her halloween costume in house of a thousand corpses like an alice like a little blue oh, dress
0: yeah, I oh, guess yeah, it was. Yeah. so
2: she's in dr satan's lair which is very very inspired by texas chainsaw massacre part two 100 mm. i mean they even yell run rabbit i remember otis bill mosley's character yelling run rabbit run you know when she's running away in that which Makes you think of the white rabbit, you know, from Alice in Wonderland.
1: Yeah, that's true. Toby
2: Hoover's got a thing for Alice in Wonderland, I think. You know, a lot of his movies has that, have that underground, like people go underground and they're in a different world. Wow. Well, before we wrap it up, guys, do y'all have any, we like to do this segment that we call Further Viewing. And uh, I'm just curious uh, if you guys... What if you were showing Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and wanted to do a double feature and not do it with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1? Uh what other movie would you what would you pair with this one? What would be a good double feature with this one?
1: I uh well Kat and I actually watched this together as uh she does graciously with me with with any movie we decide to watch. Most Has she liked those. any
2: of these movies yet? Very few, very, very few. <laughs> She's so happy you
0: joined the show, Todd.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but she loves me and she loves you guys. So she does watch the movies along with us. But after this, uh, she, she was not feeling it. She she was like, I need to cleanse uh, the palate a little bit, but I love Dennis Hopper. And we ended up watching the first speed and uh, (laughs) it was so wacky. It was such a wacky, fun uh, back-to-back of seeing Lefty and then Howard Payne yeah uh, and again uh, roughly about a decade apart yeah and it was a it was a we actually had a blast that was a really nice double feature for us it's pretty fun
0: Gary yeah. you got any oh yeah I mean I would say uh I'm gonna leave zombie to you because I know you've got him in there probably like you have no I to. don't
2: I actually thought that
0: was too obvious so I left him out okay well <laughs> if you haven't seen house of a thousand corpses or uh the the uh, devil's rejects that yeah. Clearly, you you should check those out. Yeah, um, the uh, my my big ones were actually uh, I think Joe Bob did this one too, just for the record. But uh, there was a movie called uh, Slaughterhouse that I think is pretty close to this, and just like the the mood of it is kind of similar. Uh, it's from '87, and that was a good one. Also, I know people will hate that I keep bringing this movie up, but if I if I do anything like Joe Bob did, I guess I'll pass on uh, Return to Horror High. Because I <laughs> swear to God, I feel like they have similar moods
2: as well. Yeah, yeah, they're both funny. You know what? Well, yeah. You mentioned Motel Hell earlier too, and I
0: think that would be a good one. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great one. And so, yeah, definitely, definitely those. And maybe even Evil Dead Two would fall into this category. Oh, well, Evil yeah. Dead Two
1: is
2: actually my would actually be my pick. Okay, uh, Evil Dead Two is what I would do because the, the the fun thing about Evil Dead Two, the reason that I would pair it is because. One, they were both released the same year. They were both released in 1986. They were both forced to be released unrated. And they both took a decidedly more cartoony approach than their predecessors. Mm. You know, So I think that they're both great horror comedies. The Evil Dead 2 is even zanier than this one. Oh yeah. But they have, a, there's a lot of parallels between those two movies really, you know, because the first evil dead is a straight up horror movie. Uh, people think of Ash as like this comedic character, but he's not in the first movie that, that character was created in evil dead too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think they would actually work very well as a double feature, 1986 double feature. So in 1998, Toby Hooper spoke to a reporter of Austin Chronicle and kind of reflected on the making of Texas chainsaw Two. So with more than a decade to reflect on it, he felt that the film's reception back back in 1986 was due to its kind of split personality. Uh, It was funny and witty at Hooper's request. He wanted it to be a comedy, but with realistic and disturbing gore effects. And that combination, Hooper thought, didn't sit well with audiences. This is what he said to that, that reporter from the Austin Chronicle. I'll let Gary do his uh, Toby Hooper impression since we got, we didn't get a chance to do it earlier.
0: (laughs) I'll be honest. I feel that the film came out of my frustration at the comedy in the first film, not being appreciated or understood. So I amplified the comedic aspects, but at that same time, Tom Savini made everything to anatomically correct. and cost so much that, you know, the film ended up not even getting a rating. I feel the film as wacky, crazy, bizarre, over-the-top comedy, but it missed its mark.
2: Yeah, so he, he even thinks that it didn't quite hit the way that it wanted that he wanted it to. At least not with audiences. Whether he felt it was a success or not, is a different story. But it did fill up. It did fail to live up to box office expectations. It grossed only eight million dollars, and it seemed to be the nail in the coffin. On Hooper's film career in the four years since Poltergeist. He directed three expensive films and hadn't had a, even a single box office success among them. And it was a major blow to his career. And it's why, as Gary said back in our life force episode, we could very well have called this series the death of Toby Hooper, because this one, two, three track record of failure seemed to seal the deal. You know, he'd had the, he'd had the one, two, three success of Texas chainsaw, Salem's Lot and poltergeist but now he'd had just as many if not more failures than successes at least financially and the days of canon films were numbered as well thanks to overblown over budgeted failures like these and like superman 4 masters of the universe and over the top uh, golden and globus were forced to declare chapter 11 bankruptcy before the decade was over and as for hooper uh, Hooper would spend the latter part of the 80s working mostly in television, including he did the final episode of Steven Spielberg's anthology series Amazing Stories. His episode which is called Miss Stardust is kind of a wacky one about aliens in a beauty contest and features several <laughs> folks from his entourage, including uh, Jim Seedow, you know, the cook, uh, Lorraine Newman and James Karen, And, you know, he throws in Weird Al Yankovic in there for good measure. <laughs> it's a fun episode if you, can, if you can find it check it out uh, he would go on to direct episodes of the equalizer and freddy's nightmares and actually one of the few episodes of that series to actually feature freddy krueger um although it looks like it was shot on like a shitty video that, that series sucks <laughs> regardless of, of toby hooper uh, he tried his best and that's the friday's nightmare sucks uh he did some tales from the crypt like he did he did a lot of tv work and he would return to feature filmmaking in 1990 with spontaneous combustion a kind of low budget horror movie and he would continue to work up until his death in 2017 gin which was his uh, final film that came out in 2013 uh, but he'd kind of fallen from grace and no other film that he directed after Texas Chainsaw 2 would be given a wide theatrical release. Mm.
0: Uh, worth mentioning too, he did um, he did do some Masters of Horror stuff as well. And yeah. uh, he seemed pretty proud of that. So I want to give credit to him there. He did, I guess, he did uh, two episodes, right? Yeah, he did two episodes. Uh, I'm
2: trying to remember the first one.
0: Uh, it, it was what about the the Lovecraft thing? Wasn't it?
2: Was it that him? He did Dance of the Dead,
0: which was scored, did. yeah, which was scored by uh, potentially by boss Billy Corgan. <laughs> <laughs> and then he did The Damned Thing,
2: which was I think based on H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was and pretty, pretty proud those of those. Actually, his last things he did before Jen. his Toolbox Murders remake is actually pretty solid. I think I think it was pretty good. It's a it's a good little. Uh, you know, late nineties or when it, I think it was late nineties, when it came out, uh, slasher movie. No, that was like mid two thousands. Oh, three Oh four, something like that. But yeah, that's a pretty fun little movie. Uh, he did body bags, you know, with, with John, John Carpenter, Carter. but he didn't in the mangler. I remember liking the mangler when I was in high school and saw, it. but I think it was straight to video. You know, he didn't do anything else after this. This basically killed his, it didn't kill his career as in like, he wasn't able to work after this, but he wasn't able to get like, Another poltergeist.
0: Nobody was slapping his name on something to sell it for sure. Right, Mm -hmm. right. So which is kind of a bummer because as we've talked about, like Toby
2: Hooper was a, he's a visionary guy, but I I don't know that his I don't know that his aesthetic and his vision was made for mainstream audiences. Honestly, I think it's maybe a little too weird. I don't know.
0: I'm not saying that I don't understand studios hesitance and and that sort of thing, but it it is funky. Like, I mean, through this series, we've seen what he does with uh, Toby Hooper with no money and full creative. What does he get? He gets Texas shades off. Toby Hooper with money uh, or with little money and full creative. You get like uh, eaten Alive. And uh, then you get like uh, Toby Hooper finally given like all the money and creative and he gets poltergeist and it's like, and nobody thinks that he actually did it. Yeah. And nobody thinks he yeah. actually did it. So, so it's just, it's a sad state of affairs because he's clearly the kind of guy that is like, if you're going to sign on Toby Hooper, let Toby Hooper go. <laughs> then yeah. That's kind let of what you have thing. to do. Let him do his thing. Exactly.
2: Uh, and or life force where he was given the money and the creativity or the creative freedom, and then it wasn't properly pushed, wasn't properly marketed. Like it was, people didn't know what they were getting in for. So it, it didn't. It wasn't given the chance to succeed. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of Toby Hooper's whole career. He wasn't given the chance to succeed. You know, even after even after he had already succeeded.
0: So so the original concept of this thing like when i pitched it to justin initially was the tragedy of toby hooper and it was based strictly off of watching texas chainsaw from joe bob Briggs on shutter on the last drive-in and seeing the passion in that guy when he talked about toby hooper and uh especially during the ending of the texas chainsaw episode uh it really like stirred something in me if i could just be like use a weird term but like i was just like god who is this guy like i don't know enough about toby hooper clearly i don't and so uh i i think that that's how sometimes a lot of film passes along you know it's like if somebody feels something for it and cares so much about it that they share it with the world and and so that made his passion for it made me want to study toby hooper more and you know, and therefore like it passed it along and you guys are with me and we're passing it along in our own way. I guess uh, if, if I could, I wanted to, when Toby Hooper died, Joe Bob wrote an obituary for Toby Hooper and he was kind enough that I wrote him an email and uh, he responded. It was very cool and sent me the obituary that he wrote for Toby Hooper. I kind of wanted to read the end of the obituary for Toby Hooper that would pick up about where this was for him uh essentially he had you know he he he, he runs through toby hooper's life and he he basically talks about the poltergeist incident and even said uh, up until this point you know so many years later there was a cameraman assistant cameraman that apparently worked on poltergeist telling the story to a blogger that he watched steven spielberg ghost directing poltergeist and He's like, this libel just gets passed on and on. And he was like, it just keeps going. And, and he's like, this guy wouldn't even have had access to directorial meetings or any of this stuff. And you, you could tell Joe Bob really loved, John Bloom really loved Toby Hooper. He talks about basically getting to the point that you know this screwed him over and gets him to the point where he works with Canada. And that's where I'm going to pick up here. And I'm just going to read you this. Referring to Texas Chainsaw and Poltergeist, is where he's picking up here. He says twice successful, twice cursed. Toby Hooper seemed to be the only director in history who couldn't get work even after two movies that earned more than $100 million each movies that would both be acclaimed as classics time and time again, he was asked to prove himself. Even as poltergeist took the suburban multiplexes by storm and chainsaw continued to play drive-ins, overseas territories and midnight movie houses, after a five-year censorship fight in France, Chainsaw opened on the Champs Elyssies in 1982 and had grosses higher than Superman. For a 1983 re-release by New Line Cinema, the gross was six million, an unheard of figure for a nine-year-old film that had already been released on video. Chainsaw would end up being seen on more than in more than 90 countries, sometimes dubbed, sometimes subtitled, sometimes marketed in an almost unrecognizable way. And it would sell out special screenings all across the country it was in. Its appeal, for better or worse, was universal. No matter, after Poltergeist, Hooper was forced back into the independent film world. The only reason he agreed to do the first sequel to Chainsaw is that an Israeli-owned Canon Films promised to finance two other pet projects of his, which we've discussed a little bit. He got a $20 million budget for the superb Life Force, which had mixed reviews, but poor box office. He followed that with the remake of Invaders from Mars, which got good critical reception, but underperformed. Then to satisfy his obligation to canon, he reluctantly churned out Chainsaw 2 with a $4.5 million budget. The film made money, and over the past 15 years, its acquired status as a cult favorite, but it didn't have the power of the original, partly because Hooper chose not to use Hinkle. Instead, he asked Kit Carson of Paris, Texas fame, to write it. Maybe it was ahead of its time, but the comedic treatment of the Chainsaw family, Carson envisioned it as the horror version of The Breakfast Club, just didn't fly with the serious fans of the original, and everyone who worked on Part 2 that I've talked to thought Hooper seemed detached and unchallenged. There were other attempts to revive this magic. In 1988, New Line decided to make yet another sequel. It obviously set in California with none of the original cast and with a director who didn't appear to know what universe he dwelt in. Then 20 years after the original film was released, Bob Kuhn, one of the original investors, convinced Hinkle that he should write and direct yet one more sequel, set the day after the original, ignoring the storylines of the two films released by Cannon and New Line. Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was budgeted at $500,000, then $800,000, and ended up costing $1.5 million, again raised from Austin investors. The movie should have been a hit. It was certainly the best written, best acted, and best directed of all the sequels, and it had the star power of Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger, who were unknown Austin actors when Hinkle cast them, but had become names before the movie released. But the release was sabotaged by Hollywood agents trying to protect their clients and management at Columbia TriStar that was embarrassed by an inherited project that they wanted to quickly play off on video. By then, Hooper was running as fast as he could to get away from chainsaw typecasting, but he always struggled, taking television work, The Equalizer, Freddy's Nightmares, Tales from the Crypt making occasional low-budget features like Funhouse or Spontaneous Combustion, financed by people hoping to repeat the Chainsaw success story. By the 90s, he was sufficiently well-known to have his name above the title in the anthology film Toby Hooper's Night Terrors, and he was sufficiently respected by ABC golden boy Jeff Sagansky to be entrusted with the pilot for Sagansky's pet project of 1996 Dark Skies. He continued to work in both television and film until most recently he finished out his theatrical film career with the remake of Toolbox Murders and The Disappointing Mortuary. I'm not really counting his final project in 2013, which was financed and produced in one of the few places in the world where the Texas Chainsaw Massacre had never been released, the United Arab Emirates. Like almost everything else in Hooper's life, the production of Jin was plagued by local politics, censorship, a delayed release caused by government concerns and so many hands in the pie that we have no idea what he intended. It's not a great film, but it's the first Middle Eastern horror movie filmed in both English and Arabic. And I can't imagine a part of the world that needs horror more right now. No doubt. Someday the Emirati will realize who was in their presence. Someday they will honor him someday they will understand what he brought them. And like everything else he did, others will benefit from his work. I honor him here here and now he stayed the course. Let us now praise infamous men.
1: That's great. (laughs) Yeah, that's really quite very touching. Actually. Uh,
2: This is the end of our Toby Hooper series. Maybe in the future we'll discuss some of his his later movies. I don't know how those will fit in, Um, but we'll see one day, but uh, we do have a big announcement, fellas, about the show.
1: Oh yeah, uh,
0: Justin's pregnant.
2: Yes,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I'm very happy to announce <laughs> with a No, no, we, with a <laughs> cinema got, shock
0: baby. <laughs> it's just, it, so
2: we've got we do have a uh, an announcement. Of, I guess this is a pretty big announcement, right? This is a pretty big deal if you're a regular listener it will if be. you're a regular listener this is a big deal but we, we think it's going to be good for everyone involved including our listeners and definitely including us and including the quality of the show so next week we're not doing an episode <laughs> that's that's basically <laughs> the announcement next week we are not doing an episode we are starting with our next series on this podcast we are going to be going to a new format a new release format where we're going to release episodes every other week instead of weekly like we've been doing for the last year you know because we've been doing this for almost a year now um yeah instead of instead of going weekly we're going to go bi-weekly i guess that's right bi-weekly is that every other week anyway every other week and we're doing this for a couple of reasons. Uh, the main reason is, as you may have noticed listening to this series, if you listen, especially if you listen to our old podcast, this is a lot more research-heavy. Like me and Gary take some pretty deep dives into our
1: research on here. And we, I am also on the show.
2: <laughs> well, Todd, you're an integral <laughs> part of the show. Uh, you, you're experiencing this in real time as the audience yeah. experiences the information. You know, you're you're the you're our audience surrogate. But yeah, it's a lot of work. Uh, doing yeah. this. It's a lot of work to put in all this research. And there are weeks where I wish that I had more time that I think I could have, that I could do a better episode if I had a couple more days to, to look into things. Also, there are weeks where I don't, I'm spending all my free time writing notes and researching and reading books and you know, listening to commentaries and you know, doing stuff related to the show. And I would like, you know, we, here's the thing, me, Todd and Gary all have we're all married. We all have full-time jobs. This, we don't get paid for this podcast at all. This podcast costs us money. you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we've all got other things going on. And it's been, it was one thing when the whole world was shut down and we didn't have anything else to do because we couldn't go anywhere, but we're sitting at home all the time. But it's another thing when I can, you know, me and my wife can go hang out at a bar somewhere or or go on a little road trip or something, you know, mm. uh, and we want the time to be able to spend with our family. So basically what you're getting out of this as a, as an audience member, I think is one, you're going to get better episodes because we're going to have more time to prepare for them. And I think the episodes we've been doing are great, but it's because we've been like, like I said, I'm spending every waking minute I have working on this shit. Uh, and now I don't have to do that. And I can even get, I can, give you more information but you're also going to have happier hosts you know (laughs) if we're going to be able to uh, have a more more full life i think because and also todd and gary both have their own shit going on they both have other podcasts todd's got computer resume gary's got this is pro wrestling which is blowing up like crazy and he's going to have to start traveling more for that which is awesome but it also means that there are weeks when gary's not going to be here to record uh so doing this every other week release is going to give us the opportunity to do that without having to do episodes without all three of us here. Mm. So I think it's going to be good for everyone. I think it's going to be good. And that doesn't mean that like there will be weeks where in between main episodes, we're going to be releasing some bonus content. We're still kind of playing with format on that, but it's going to let us play around with the format of the show a little bit too. Uh, So you're going to get some additional stuff In addition to like the main episodes, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So you're getting a higher quality show plus uh, some new bonus content and uh, and we get a little bit of breathing room. So it's a win win all the way around.
0: I think it works for the listeners as well that, you know, you guys get to have more time to enjoy the movie. Maybe, maybe, you know, in between, like you you get a chance to check out the actual film.
2: And we know that like these episodes can run long. They can run two hours easily. Sometimes if there's a lot of information about the film available to us. And I know that I personally, you know, different people have different ways of listening to podcasts, but I mostly listen to it to a podcast in my car and listening to a two-hour podcast takes a while, so yep. it gives you more time to listen to the podcast before the next episode comes out, and hopefully it gives you more time to be able to like check the movie out and watch along with us. You know, which is easier to fit in if you've got a couple of weeks in between each one uh, to to squeeze that episode in, so you can watch the next one along with us. So we think it's going to be better for you guys in the long run. We definitely know it's going to be better for us in the long run, uh, and maybe in a couple months we'll decide we hate it and we'll switch back. Who knows? But probably not. <laughs> <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> i know we've got a, we've all got a lot of shit going on the rest of this year now that we can actually do stuff uh but i do think the episodes are going to be considerably uh, even better than they've already been and i think we've been doing great content so far but hey if we can make it even better uh i mean quant i'll, I'll take quality over quantity any day of the week
1: absolutely
0: 100%. We want to make these episodes the end all be all for like resources on some of these movies. So, yeah, it uh, we want to make them as good as can be, like that you feel like you've learned everything there really is to learn about this film. Yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. So, I guess, uh, speaking of which, let's talk about what we're going to be going into for our next series here on the podcast. So, that episode again will be in two weeks from now. Oh, yeah. And what we're going to do is uh, we're going into a series on a uh, filmmaker named Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, Who you may have heard of, a guy who is responsible for RoboCop, Total Recall, Starship Troopers, you know. Uh, and we're starting, we're not starting at the beginning of his career because his Dutch films are a little bit hard to find. We want, you, again, we want you guys to be able to stream these movies. We try to find movies that are easy to find, uh, easier to at least stream in, for the most part. And a lot of his early Dutch stuff is simply not. But we're starting actually with his first film that he made in Hollywood or in America, but that still featured some players from his days uh, making making Dutch films. Someone like Rudger Hauer, who was a major collaborator of his early on. It's a movie called Flesh and Blood. Uh, and we're going to be talking about that next week. And then we'll go into, of course, more of his better known films because this film right after flesh and blood was robocop and i'm sure you guys have heard of that one <laughs> have you guys heard of <laughs> RoboCop? Talk, yeah mm-hmm. have you heard of that one <laughs> you ever seen it so talking about flesh and blood on our next episode uh it's pretty easy to find streaming but head to cinemashock.net where you can find links to where you can stream that and watch
1: it along with us and we'll be back here in two weeks to discuss it very excited i'm really excited about this uh verhoeven series
2: the Verho- Verhoeven series is going to be good. Again, we're yeah. not going to talk about every movie on his career, but we're talking about a good good stretch of his, uh, his big commercial movies. So, Ooh, yeah. So, anyway, where can you guys be found on the internet for people who want to follow you along?
1: I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all the socials. And as Justin mentioned, uh, I've got a podcast called Computer Resume Podcast. So, uh, if you've ever been curious or if you just want to hear us talk about how lame Star Trek Enterprise is, Please come find us wherever you uh wherever you download your podcasts.
2: Probably a lot of that discussion going on, honestly. Yeah, there's there's quite a bit of that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's some love. There's some love there too, but all right. We we get we give everybody their just.
0: All right. Well, I am at uh this is Gary Horn. I also have um the This Is Pro Wrestling show, which we mentioned earlier. I don't know why I always <laughs> forget the name of it. You're, but, wear, you're literally wearing the T-shirt right now. I'm, I'm, <laughs> really, it's a, it's a, I'm it's wearing a, tank a This top. Is the NWA, which is our post show that we now do on the official NWA YouTube channel. But anyway, that, that's that This happening. Is Pro Wrestling. This is Pro Wrestling. The NWA is located on Fight TV. You can check them out weekly. And uh, yeah, this is Pro Wrestling at TIPW show or YouTube.com slash this is Pro Wrestling. Tonight, as we're recording, this is AEW's Double or Nothing. We're going to do a post show right after. So uh, check us out. You won't hear this by then, so you'll just have to go. We'll just know for next time. (laughs) (laughs) You'll know for next time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am at Justin underscore Bishop. That's on Twitter. That's on Letterboxd. That's on Instagram uh, with the show is at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. You can also like the show on Facebook. You can also join our Facebook group. It's called a slice of fried gold. Uh, it's there on fit. Just search for that on Facebook. It'll, you'll see the little logo uh, or you can join our discord, which we, where we have a lot of fun discussions about movies, not just the movies we're talking about on the podcast, just movies in general, movie news, things like that. A lot of people who have been guests on the show are me- are pretty active on, on uh, our discord. You can find a link to that at cinemashock.net. Just click on the button that says discord uh, and you're, you're in. So until next week, may I'm sorry, wings. until two weeks from now, until two <laughs> weeks. from now. You got to start until saying, next, until, until next time. time. Yep. Until next time, may the wings of Liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other.
1: It's a dog-eat-dog world, and from where I sit, Johnny has the keys.
2: (laughs) That's good. You're getting better at these.
1: I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out. It's better when you think
2: it through, honestly. Yeah, a
1: little bit.